Hey, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. I'm your host, Tim Richardson. On this episode, I sit down with Max Witcher, co-founder of Spin Brands, and we talk about cutting through the digital noise if you're a direct consumer brand, scaling the agency model, and which famous people he'd prefer to be stuck in an elevator with. Before we get into it, how are the leading DDC brands growing their business? Well, they're using Klaviyo, the growth marketing platform chosen by over 25,000 global innovative online brands. Klaviyo believes in supporting growth, which is why they won't tie you into lengthy contracts, hidden setup or support fees, or feature-based pricing. With a platform that is both powerful and easy to use, it's no wonder so many brands have switched to Klaviyo. Looking for one more compelling reason? Brands switching to Klaviyo see an average of 62 times return on their investment. Don't take my word for it. Go and check them out. Visit klaviyo.com slash your basket is empty. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Max, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yes. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Good. It's cool to be here at last. I know, right? I've had so many things. Yeah. It's a very cozy room we're in here. It's nice. Slightly uh, hot. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's sauna esque. It's sauna esque, and and I, I I have heard that the smell can kind of get to us. So <laughs> well, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll make it obvious. Okay, yeah. so we were just chatting about it. We met at uh, at a summer party yeah. last year. Yeah, and you told me um, that the kind of start of your journey was um, taking over a bike shop. Yeah, that you were working at. Yeah. Talk me through it. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. I guess, um, well, I suppose prior to the, even taking over the cycle shop, I um, never really felt super academic at school. I was quite a practical learner and I didn't really feel like um, I was able to sort of excel or, or make the impact I wanted to. Um, so I was a, always into sports, cycling specifically, um, very quickly sort of took that to the next level. Um, spent a lot of my time cycling rather than going to lessons and exams and schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously got to a point of um, where I really needed to start making my hobby pay for itself, <laughs> let's say. Um, so I started sort of getting into cycling. I actually got a job at my local cycle shop um, when I was 13. So probably a little bit younger than you're even allowed to start working. And it was like cash in hand, super cheeky, um, like Sunday, did like six hours. Um, and then effectively slowly started taking on more and more responsibility within the business. Um, it's sort of accelerating right through to when I was 19. Um, I, a lot of my friends had just finished A-levels. I just, I'd completed A-levels. I enjoyed it, enjoyed media psychology, um, but knew that university wasn't for me and all of my friends were going off to university. Um, so ultimately I decided to, um, look at the world of advertising actually because I enjoyed psychology and media and I thought like a, a really good combination is how advertising and modern day digital media works um so I was going to get an internship at an advertising agency and just sort of like become a t-boy work my way up that was what I had planned um until I mentioned that to my boss at the time of the cycle shop and he effectively proposed selling me the business on a private loan because he was looking at retiring and taking a step back and didn't really need the cash, but also wanted it to sort of like continue to grow and flourish. Um, and which was it was actually always a dream of mine. And I just sort of like s stopped thinking about it quite early on because I just knew I didn't have enough money to do anything like that. So I just needed to like knuckle down and start working. 
um, which was quite interesting. And then at that point, yeah, it was a it was a weird stage. I needed to decide what I wanted to do. Um, it was a bit of a curveball, and obviously it was a huge opportunity. It's very unusual at my age to get that, um, but it was also a huge risk. It was like the equivalent of going to university twice. Um, and I think I spoke to my mum. Monetarily, so that yeah, was yeah. like what it was going to be. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. wow. And um, So for someone that wasn't considering yeah, uni, yeah. now yeah. suddenly you've got this opportunity, which is twice as expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. ultimately it was a loan. Like at the end yeah. of the day, like although it was a private loan, it was still a loan. Yeah. Like it, it, I had full responsibility to pay it back if it worked or didn't. Um, so there was definitely an element of a risk. Um, although it was nice to think at last, like all of these things that I've wanted to do in the shop that I've never really had the... Um, creative direction to be able to do or the um, authority to do that I could actually, now there's no excuses. <laughs> I could literally just do those um, and digitalize it, which was always an ambition of mine. So um, yeah, I think I spoke to my mum and she was like, well, some people do go to university twice and some people still start off with um, an entry level salary and a job and they yeah. still have or that Or take debt. out a loan yeah. after uni. So yeah. they're three times, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Exactly. And then, and then she was talking about like, well, yeah, there's mortgages and there's all those things that I put it into proportion. I thought, hey, look, I'm super young. I've got my whole life against, uh, uh, like ahead of me if it, like if I me mess it up or it doesn't work. So I obviously said yes and got cracking and very quickly realized that I'd jumped in the deep end without armbands and there was so much more to owning a business than ever like managing a business. Um, so I had like ran it when he was on holiday and like had decent sort of responsibility, but yeah, owning it and paying bills was pretty tricky. So I remember signing my first check for our alarm company, knowing that there was no money in the bank account, but it was on like a Thursday or a Friday and I knew it would take three days to clear and I had the weekend ahead. So basically I had to sell some bikes that weekend. Otherwise that check was going to bounce. And that was quite a fun slash, well, horrible, nerve wracking, like tear jerking time at the start. But looking back now, it kind of makes me smile with maybe naivety, how, how I was just like willing to take that risk. Well, that is proper like throwing in the deep end. Yeah. I think people talk about it, right? Like when you like start a job, like you were talking about, um, like going into the advertising world and starting from the ground up and someone would give you some big account, you know, yeah. and you're really young, you don't know what you're doing. But ultimately, you're probably not going to get fired. No. You're probably still going to get yeah, paid yeah. the next month. Like, okay, maybe you get fired the next... Do you know what I mean? But yeah, like yeah. that even, is... Even in this country, you've got like probation yeah, and yeah, like yeah. so All much sort of stuff. Whereas that, like, right, last payment has gone out, zero money in the, in the yeah. account, need to sell bikes yeah. this weekend. That's no. it. I literally didn't have a choice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, wicked. so I went into it with this obviously this huge loan, but no working capital. Um, luckily, I inherit. Well, I bought the shop as a sort of going concern. So there's lots of stock. So I knew that immediately I just had one task of selling 20% of the stock. And then that was going to turn into my cash flow uh, to run the business. So from a very young age, like it taught me a lot about budgeting and cash flow. Um, effectively built and grew the business over the next four years from 19... Um, and loved it and hated it and had a lot of sleepless nights and also enjoyed it as well. It was great. It was a real lifestyle business. It enabled me to sort of do what I loved doing, which was cycling, um, buy nice bikes and go out cycling regularly with customers. Um, but I quickly sort of realized that there was a ceiling to it and I didn't want to work in retail for the rest of my life because up until now, I had spent most of my like youth or childhood working weekends and it kind of like not that I didn't have a childhood because of that but it does really limit it um so yeah effectively 
got to a point where I knew that I needed something else. I had itchy feet maybe. I just paid off the loan. So I'd, I think I was six months prior to paying off the loan. It was all forecasted to go smoothly. And I was like, cool, what next? So what um, age was this thing? Because 19 was 22. took it on. 22. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, yeah, 20, 22, just turning. Yeah. So um, yeah, February. And I, yeah, I just knew that I needed something else. And about six months prior, I started thinking about it. Um, at that point, I'd actually just started consulting on a digital level for one of the brands that I stocked in the shop. Um, because being a, a avid social user, but also in a unique commercial situation, put me in a really um, powerful situation to start consulting to other business owners. Um, specifically as social and digital was becoming more popular and more integral to businesses, um, they effectively realized that actually I was in this unique perspective I knew the technical um, terminology of the industry, but also like the online side of things. And because I was effectively spending my own money advertising my own business on an online level, um, I knew I, I definitely didn't want to make that not work, you know. So I, um, yeah, I learned a lot, did lots of online courses, really developed my knowledge. Um, and at that point, I met my now business partner of SPIM. So yeah, so Alex is the business part. So those initial kind of interactions with your current customers and understanding and growing with the digital landscape as it was growing quite yeah. quickly then. Yeah, at what point did spin become a thing? Or did it just kind of happen organically? Like it, you had enough clients now that you were already working with. You're like, yeah. okay, well, we need to branch this off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So um, yeah, I started sort of doing ad hoc consulting while I was working in the shop. So it was really good in the winter. I, it was quiet. Um, and I could literally just be like scurrying away in the corner on my laptop, running ads, um, organic, sort of managing organic social feeds for clients um, with the brands within the industry. And then yeah, at that point, I had um, one main client that was paying like a decent amount and a few other ad hoc brands. Um, so not a huge amount at all. Um, but I was introduced to my now business partner, Alex, who um, through a mutual friend, um, he had just left his agency. So he was working at Essence, the big um, agency in town, obviously looking after big, big brands like Google, FT, YouTube, etc. Um, and he had just left to start his own business. Um, and it just happened to be in the bike world. So we had a few mutual friends and they were like, look, you're both in the bike industry, you're both young. Like there's basically, aren't, there aren't very many young people in the bike industry, like connect and we did and we got on. Um, and I was really interested in picking his brains about like big agency world because that was always something that I'd thought about. And he had done it and gone through the, the process and now come out of it to start a bike brand, which ultimately was the industry that I felt like I knew like the back of my hands because I'd just been in it for so long. So his uh, vision coming out of the big agency wasn't to start a small agency. It was to start a brand itself. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And then you were picking his brains about, hey, what's big agency life like? Because I've yeah. got small clients that I'm working with. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And then um, he he had actually done an amazing job launching a bike brand. So he was importing bikes from Taiwan. Um, like it had like almost a semi-international distribution, um, had a flagship shop in Covent Garden, Seven Dials. I was doing really, really well as building this brand. And I looked at another bike industry owner and thought, oh, they're smashing on social and digital too. Like we should talk and collaborate. Um, I was always with the view that it should be collaborative rather than competitive. Um, so we did and yeah, we basically did a knowledge share session in his shop in Covent Garden, I remember it so clearly. We basically just booked in an hour. I had a load of questions about agency life. He had a load of questions about the bike industry and like dealer margins and things like that. And we just started there. 
Um, but, it's okay. So this is what I'm really interested in these sorts of stories. Like, at what point did essentially, I suppose, your concept kind of get into his mind that, oh, actually, that's probably easier thing to do. is that what it yeah. was he was thinking okay brand is more difficult so this is going to be a quick yeah win. i think so kind of i think we were both naively went into the bike industry thinking like you go into the industry you love and you end up hating it and like for what it's worth like do still love the bike industry and i appreciate it for what it is but it is a lifestyle business um more often than not so i think we were still young and hungry and we kind of went into it maybe a little bit blindly um, and then realized that there was a, a quite a ceiling to it. You needed a lot of capital. There was a lot of work that went into like resulted in small margins. Um, and yeah, we wanted more, we had more in the tank. And at that point I sort of spoke to him about what I was doing on the consulting side. And I knew that one of the brands wanted to get more involved and spend more money with me. And I felt a little bit out of my depth and I had this imposter syndrome. So I obviously just reached out to Alex for support and said, look, I'd love to get you your brain on this and I think he had already shown signs of interest prior to that um I said look it'd be great to um yeah work on this project together and we did and he he helped with a load of like new processes that I hadn't thought of um and it just worked so well um it was just that was as simple as that that was our first client and we rolled out we worked on a project together and then um yeah it, it spiraled into what's now a spin and I think we both looked at the industry and what we were doing on the consulting side as super lucrative and exciting and scalable um, and the bike industry wasn't necessarily unless you went for like territorial growth or in, or online growth both of which were like ultra competitive and not necessarily the right thing to do back then um so yeah we um so yeah, yeah so you so fast forwarding to now then so yeah. spin brands is what, what's the mission of spin brands in its current form um yeah it's a great scale in businesses that we believe in basically okay. is that is in in a nutshell yeah. our mission um and ultimately what we've done is over the last three or four, four years now coming up this month will be four years old um i think 16th of february um we um yeah, we've, we've transitioned hugely. We started off in like small business startup world. We loved it, but also appreciated that it was um, full of lots of founder-led emotional decision makers and actually um, transitioned over the last three years into actually building proper p processes and systems, um, integrating more services, so like diversifying our offering. We are a pure play social agency. So initially we started at ultimately creating accounts. Um, then it was managing the accounts that we had created. And then it was, um, how do we make them like more, how do we increase the exposure? Like how do we increase visibility? So paid social then integrated its way in. Um, and also to protect our value, uh, i.e. offering the client some sort of return on investment rather than just some um, subjective brand content that was going out for awareness and social proofing. Um, so we'd sort of like almost forecasted a potential risk in our business model that actually, um, A, it was super subjective and B, um, businesses want co commercial return on investment. So actually integrating some sort of paid advertising metric where you can attribute traffic and sales was always going to be the best way of protecting our business yeah, model. That's super important, the attribution and providing that yeah. ROI in a very black and white way, right? Yeah. Exactly. So how did you, I, I'm, I'm always interested when I, when I speak to, to co-founders of, of businesses. So your COO and, and Alex's CEO, correct? Yeah, I've actually just changed to CBO, which CBO. is, yeah, yeah. It's not campaign budget optimization. It's uh, 
a chief business officer. So ultimately like handling um, sales and churn. Right. So really like taking a hold on that. Right. So you uh, are responsible for new business and ensuring that that exactly. stays around. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was basically in and out. Yeah, in and out. <laughs> um, yeah. Reducing out and yeah. increasing, increasing in. in. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Um, so I'm always, so did you guys think about that like four years ago or has it been an organic process been, or was did you get people in to figure out like yeah. what you're good at what he's good at you know how did you figure that out no it's, it was really weird actually it was super organic um it just flowed i think alex coming from an agency background always felt like he took the lead on certain technical um aspects of the business which just made complete sense that was his that's what he knew that was his bread and butter um and i was a bit more of a people person um, had always sold bikes and yep. um, enjoyed that sort of client customer interfacing um, side of the business. So I think, it, yeah, it was a really smooth transition. We've always been very good at like just holding our hands up for things that A, that we like doing and what we don't like doing. I think that as a co-founder, it's really important to do that. So important, um, right? Yeah. And not be too rigid in like the traditional um job descriptions of CEO, COO, CBO, and actually just saying, cool, there's one person that ultimately leads the vision at the business and focuses like on moving things forward. And then there's there's another person that sort of continues to ensure that obviously that everyone gets that vision and ma maintains like company culture and the people side of things. And then there's obviously like the sales side of the business, which is almost like a tertiary side of it. Um, which is just ensuring that actually we're sustaining the growth. We're putting coal in the engine or coal in the uh, fire, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to come on to the, the model itself because I want to talk. I'm cool. very, I work at an agency. You've got an agency. I'm, I'm very interested in the agency model, but I want to talk more about like some of the clients you've got and I suppose more broadly around the uh, growth stage brand slash direct to consumer market. So you work with brands like Muji, yeah. which is really cool. I'm keen to understand like, what is it like working, whether it's a brand like Muji, just working within the kind of space that you're in four years ago compared to today? How has it changed and kind of what's what's the future given it's so... Yeah, it's so the whole direct-to-consumer so, market is crazy. crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it's really interesting actually because um, we're lucky to have quite a broad... Um, array of clients in our portfolio. So yeah, like Muji, which is probably 5,000 stores across the world. Um, we handle a lot of the social for their European countries. So we're working on like translators and quite a complex model really. Um, and then there are more young, fresh-faced scale-ups that have, have grown really quickly over the last few years um, in the direct-to-consumer market. And then there are older brands that have been around a while that were mainly built off distribution and wholesale networks as traditional sales was um, and have now really like pivoted or flipped or seen it or even seen an opportunity to go direct to consumer. And actually the, I'm working on a brand at the moment who's done exactly that. And they're really struggling in the wholesale market. They, they've always sold product via distribution and now the product that they're selling is getting returned at the end of the year. Um, it, it's just not shifting, which is then putting them in sort of like negative cash flow situations. And this is their direct consumer channel. That's their wholesale channel. Oh, okay. So now they're going so right. They're, now they're like, look, right. we actually need to do direct to consumer to survive. Yeah, right. So they're, right. they're like taking that immediate flip and saying, I'm sorry, distributors, but ultimately we need to take ownership of this now. We can't rest on our laurels and let you sell our product or not sell our product, which is what's happened. Um, so that's an interesting opportunity for an older brand that's been around for a long time that now needs to take hold of it. 
But you're right, there's a lot of like young direct-to-consumer brands. I think like you working, especially in the Shopify space is really interesting because um, it's, there's a low barrier to entry to start an online business now, right? Even with the likes of like Dropship and um, just cheap products to sell and buy and even like custom t-shirts, it happens. And then you, you can sort of create like communities on social and push it out. And um, I think... It's interesting because you're right, it's a busy space now and it's, it, yeah, it's, there's almost too many people doing the same old t-shirt, mm. private label Well, that's model. interesting you say. It's like, I feel, and I talked about it with a, a previous uh, podcast guest, the barrier to entry is low, as low as you can go. But as low as it's ever been. is yeah. higher. So yeah. how do you cut through the noise? Exactly. The low barrier to entry, yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess that's going to be the challenge of the of the, the future, the next little while. And, and it's, I think that for me is opportunity. Like for a lot of brands that we're working with, I see that as like, cool, we need to rip up the rule book. We need to think outside the box. Let's be fun. Let's have fun. Let's be honest. Let's be brutal. Let's um, let's say what everyone else is thinking and not saying. And that's how you cut through the noise. That's so interesting. I think that there's an immediate, like, um, not negativity, but uphill battle, like, uh, you know, potentially insurmountable task element to that noise. Whereas flipping on his head and going, yeah, no, nah, man. That's an opportunity. Like, that's really good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe, yeah, I think that's, I think what's what you need to do. You need to, ultimately, I don't think you're cut out to be an entrepreneur uh, if, you, if you're not optimistic like that. And these things are good. It's important for markets to be flooded to actually like, just filter out the, the, the ones that should deserve to stay. Um, if they all just decided that they could stay and it was so easy for them to stay and survive, then I, I don't think you get true brands out of that. Um, there's a lot of like overnight success, which is overnight for a reason, right? And deserves to be, in my opinion. Like, mm. um, it's a, it's an interesting space, definitely. Mm. So, getting back to the um, the the agency model, uh, I was on a I was on a not my own podcast, but on someone else's podcast a couple of weeks ago, and they posed they asked me to pose a problem to them and discuss how. Um, I had overcome it and my problem <laughs> that I posed to them or myself was uh, how do you scale what is a relatively unscalable model like an agency <laughs> yeah I know. so uh, people can go and listen to that podcast get my answer yeah. I want to get your answer how do you how have you guys done it like because you, you, you know four years it's gone from two people how many people in the team we're had? yeah 20 full-time in yeah our office now so um, yeah 80 different clients across 10 different countries and how's that been? So, because is um, do you have a model whereby you've got twenty kind of core members, and then you get sort of uh, other resources as and when for scale, like during busy periods or more clients come on, or have you kind of said, right, that twenty people, that's our kind of optimum for the next stage, and we will just maximize that um, capacity. Um- it's, it's been interesting, actually, because the irony is that when we left the bike industry, we wanted something scalable. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up moving into an agency world. create which, an app. That's, I mean, that, yeah. it, it felt scalable compared to the bike industry right, at the yeah, time, yeah. which it, it definitely is in comparison to. But but then, yeah, when you look at like the tech world of, um, yeah, scale, that's a huge, that's di- scale, huge right? different yeah, level, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I would say it's people is so important. Like, yeah, ultimately we're in a people business. Uh, people, 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 and then profit. Like, and if you look after the people, then everything else will sort of fall in part. Um, we've worked really, really hard on processes and systems. Um, creating things like decision-making values in the business is really important for scale. Um, we definitely have noticed that transition between 
being a family when you're about 12 people. And then over 12, you become more of a team. Uh, being a family, you have like unconditional love for each other, no matter how hard or well you play. And then as soon as you're a team, it becomes like a team sport. Like there's, there's an A team and a B team almost. Yeah, and yeah, we yeah. only really like you if you play hard. And yeah. that makes us sound really ruthless and brutal. But um, I think actually having some accountability across the team is really important. Um, but ultimately, if, if, if our team fails, it's our, it's our fault and our problem in our processes. So I love those scenarios where something doesn't go right. And then we can look at sort of the process that's caused it and just rip it up and redevelop it or remold it. And processes change. Like mm. Alex is, that's something that Alex is really, really good at. Um, looking at things on a macro level and looking at processes, implementing processes, uh, ensuring that they are followed through. And also just admitting that some processes don't work. And if you feel like you've just implemented what you thought was a really good process and you're not getting like the, um, the buy-in from the team, that's fine. We'll move on and we'll work with the team to develop something and create a different, different process that's mutually beneficial. Um, and do you find that, yeah, so the process, I, I totally agree. What about things like you kind of touched on when maybe the process doesn't work? What about clients <laughs> and making sure there's the right fit? And yeah. so we, we've experienced that by, you know, sort of, We've grown quite quickly yeah. in a three-year period. And the reality is the clients we were working with three and a half years ago are maybe not a great fit for us now. And yeah. that's just the reality of it. Like, have you guys experienced something like that? 100%. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely our transition from like small business startup world to scale-ups is like where we sort of position ourselves now is like the sweet spot. So, um, and the, the key differentiator, I think, with those two types of groups of businesses is emotional decision makers and data-driven decision makers. Um, I'm going to steal that. I'm actually writing that down. <laughs> I love it. Um, with the scale-ups, they uh, normally have a board of directors, some funding, external or internal. Um, ultimately, they need to make data-driven decisions. They're less founder-led, less emotional. Um, and yeah, that, that really helps our business. And I think how we've managed to scale social, which is a relatively subjective industry, is sort of separating different services and being really frank with aligning reality with expectations. Like I'm a big believer of like that being the sort of core metric of success is how close you can get reality with expectations. Um, that is happiness from a client level and, and a team level. So actually just being really direct with expectations. Like if they are looking for organic social with us, they need to know that it's a brand piece. It's a brand awareness, social proofing credibility. It's not like a core acquisition channel. Whereas something like paid social obviously is. And then we can develop and build ROI off the back of that with different funnels. So I think that's the key thing for us. Um, but yeah, we've noticed actually moving into the scale up space now, the kind of brands we're working with um, uh, yeah, it definitely has helped. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't think there's any bad or what. No, it's not like it's not right or wrong. Good. Yeah, that is. It was bad or is bad now. It's just different, right? It's like it's, it's just a different way of working. And I think the the fit thing is the expectation thing is such a crucial element. Like the and I think it's all too easy within the agency world to look at cost as the differentiator. Yeah, and it rarely is. You know, I think it's all about value, right? Mm. So if if you can prove your value and you've got a brand that really want to work with you and can see it and the vision, I mean, they'll do what they can to make it work financially, right? Yeah. But sometimes I think that the, the value proposition between the two parties, not just from the agency, usually that's where the problems start and the expectations because, you know, brand X is expecting this 
and your service now might be at a bit more of an enterprise level. There's more process in place. Yeah. We can't get back to you in an hour. Yeah. You don't can't have my phone number anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's just it, it's the expectation just isn't there. And that's ultimately where my job comes into play, and it's so important because uh, Alex and I have spoken about this a lot. And right now I'm a CBO, right? but my job is to make myself redundant in this area of the business. So I'm now building a team that understand that and sort of follow a process of aligning reality with expectations and not just being a sales team that oversell and under deliver consistently because that's just not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and it's just understanding that metric really yeah. and making it work that way. I mean, we could talk for yeah. a, I might. We might reconvene at a later date to talk yeah. purely agency model and uh, the, the challenges there. But I want to move away slightly from spin brands um, and you're involved in a few other things. So... Talk me through full funnel, full funnel Fun. ventures <laughs> yeah. and active collection. So, cool. interestingly, I'm going to tell you a little story. I haven't told you this. Nice. I got targeted by Active Collection on Instagram. Nice. Right? That's what I like to hear. Literally at the same time, myself and a friend had like come up with a very similar concept and we Good. were trying to figure it out. Yeah. And then Active Collection came. I remember sending it to my friend Luke. I was like, dude, have you seen this? <laughs> and it wasn't like, oh, these guys are beating us too. It was like, look, someone else is doing it. There's something it's in it. Proof of concept. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So talk me through it. Yeah, so... um. Yeah, I guess a couple of years ago, Alex and I um, thought of the idea. So it's this, it's a spin-born project, um, and obviously working on with lots of brands, a lot across lots of different industries, you become inspired a lot. Um, some for better, some for worse, um, and we'd always sort of appreciated our knowledge from the sports industry, and also as you um, sort of, I suppose, seen an opportunity as a target audience, i.e., um, like male that wants to buy nice uh, premium sportswear um, but doesn't want to hunt around all day and all night for like those brands that no one's heard of but also create good product um, so we thought we'd make like a curated collection um, which is the active collection which is the premium sportswear marketplace um, an online channel um, and we've effectively got people working on curating brands that you went you wouldn't have heard of but they are they perform well as product, so they're not just like cheap um, day glow like um, functional product, um, but they're also aesthetic because people are spending more time in active wear, athleisure wear than ever before. They they're a they're willing to spend more money on it because they're spending more time in it, but they're also not willing to just do the activity in it. They want to go to the coffee shop. They want to hang around. It might just be a Saturday casual wear now, and it definitely is for me for certain brands, um, and I appreciate like looking good like and it sounds vain but I, I i think it's important there's a there's a fashion conscious man or woman out there now that appreciates the sportswear side of things and likes to keep active um and having that dual purpose product really helps so yeah effectively we we're about a year and a half in now i think um and we've been going we've curated a bunch of brands i think we've got about 20 different brands on the website some work some didn't um and are sort of importing brands from places like the US where initially as a customer, you might see a, a really cool brand that you like. Um, there's a running brand called Janji that we work with, which is a perfect example. Um, the, the product is amazing. Like it's really, really cool. It's functional, it's cool, it's aesthetic. Like everything about the brand, the community, everything they do as a uh, purpose driven. Um, but as soon as you go to buy a single product, i.e. shorts or t-shirt, A, you get hit with like import duties. Then you'll see like, they slap on huge shipping costs like 10 plus 30 quid 
Um, and then there's like three week delivery time, which just we just thought was like, this is crazy. Like, why is no one doing this? And actually what we've done is we've effectively stumbled onto sort of a, a new model, which was traditionally distribution. So brands would have UK distributors, um, but then those distributors would then sell to retail. Um, and then you'd buy through retail bricks and mortar. Ultimately, what we've designed is it's nothing new. Um, there are other people doing it in different industries is distribution direct to consumer. So we have exclusivity with certain brands on our site now and we manage UK and Europe or just UK. Um, and then we fulfill them direct to consumer level. So we're, we're using the power that we have within the agency in terms of a marketing level, a paid social level, uh, curating audiences and communities and yeah, and sort of selling the products that way. That's so cool. Yeah. So there's an interesting um, skate slash streetwear brand that's got a not dissimilar concept called Parade World. I'll show you it. I haven't heard of it. It's no, really, it sounds really cool. cool. You got to check it nice. out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in those marketplace models. So that could yeah. be another. Yeah. Another well, exactly. I think we saw like Farfetch IPO and we were like, oh, yeah. this is cool. So I think <laughs> Farfetch have invested in Parade World. I'm oh, not sure. It's really, really interesting. I'll show you. Cool. So I'm, I'm keen to learn a, a little bit more about what kind of makes you tick. So like how you're a busy person <laughs> what do you do to maintain balance and perspective um not a lot okay good frank yeah. frank honest answer um anyone that knows me will probably agree is that i'm not very good at it it's my actually it's my it's a big 2020 goal mm. of mine i think the issue is is i love what i do and it fires me up so much i uh, like bounce out of bed with adrenaline most days and obviously not consistently but uh, the majority of the time and being in control of that and having that feeling makes you sort of struggle to relax or calm down or have me time because I feel like I'm have this lack of productivity. Um, but maybe that's not a bad thing. No, like exactly. may, maybe the, the, the challenge is that society uh, sort of pushes us into uh, a, an area where it's like work hard, play hard. And if you're doing loads of work, it means you're not playing. But what if you really enjoy your job? Yeah. Maybe that's where the play is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And so, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And that's how I feel. And I feel like it's hard sometimes when you speak to like our parents or different age groups and they sort of have got this traditional mentality of conforming like you work is work and you do a nine to five and you don't really have to enjoy it, but it pays the bills. And then on the weekends you enjoy yourself. And, and to be honest, like I don't know whether it's luck or um, just... The, how things are changing now is that we've created this business which is actually super fun mm. um, and you're in control of it and you're building a team of people who are actually just friends so you're working with your friends all day you're making massive impact for loads of businesses which ultimately releases like serotonin and dopamine which are happiness chemicals and off the back of how me how I've like learned to relax is actually just studying like psychology um, and those th and, and, and everything like that really and looking at like health and wellness and fitness and for me, it's actually identifying like happiness chemicals being in like endorphin, serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. And like, I used to get sort of a weird sort of anxiety on a Sunday where I mean, most people the probably fear. have it yeah, on that yeah, Monday yeah, morning, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't the fear of going to work the next day. It was, it was sort of like this emptiness of like, I haven't done anything with my weekend. And it felt like a really like, I was like really angry at myself or frustrated. And I realized that ultimately it was just like a lack of productivity. And because I'm so like highly focused or productive during Monday to Friday, it was just a massive deficit drop on the weekend. So now I am, um, interestingly, I'm like really OCD with my uh, Google calendar, my work calendar. So 
and I w- had a life coach for a while that helped me on this. And um, she ended up saying like, cool, you're, well, you use your calendar so religiously. Why don't you just add stuff to your calendar? Um, and I did. So I was like, on Wednesdays, I like make weekend plans because I'm so bad at like just diving into the week and then waking up on Friday being like, oh yeah, I should go and see my friends. And then they've already got plans. And I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like, there you go. So uh, Google Calendar yeah, is the perspective the tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I'm keen to draw it sort of cool. towards a close. Nice. Usually at this point, I, I like ask people about maybe what's the best decision they've made what's the worst decision they've made and then like what's their plan for 2020 all right and uh i'm sure you've got some great answers to that <laughs> I've, I've i've gone with a question which i know you you haven't necessarily got an answer for which i think is a good thing so i'm going to put you on the spot here this is a bit of an oddball slightly left of field um discussion point so final question is you're stuck in an elevator yeah Service people are predicting you're going to be in there for at least eight hours. You can be stuck in there with anyone in the world. Who is it and why? <laughs> and to add the, a caveat, uh, it, it's like obviously not a huge elevator. Alive or dead. They can be alive or dead. I didn't want yeah, to be yeah, too prescriptive. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to go with the whole desert island thing. I thought elevator is kind of interesting because it's very close. close yeah, yeah. So is, isn't it? what sort of person would you actually want to be stuck in an elevator with? Part of me, um, <laughs> I don't know, it's a tricky one. It really is. I think what would be really interesting is to have sort of a bit of a juxtaposition between the future and the past because, um, yeah, there's it's an interesting space that we're in at the moment. There's a lot of like, change. Like in the last decade, there's been a huge amount of change and in the decade to come, I'm sure again, the same. So I think it'd be quite fun to have maybe someone like Churchill yeah, there like we go. A, Winston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, old school, sort of really, um, yeah, interesting to get his perspective on, like, maybe I could just explain what's happening, like, in the 2020. Yeah. And yeah, say, yeah. like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> what do you think? Um, and then maybe, like, complete juxtaposition of, like, Elon Musk, who's very futuristic, who's always thinking about the future and how we're going to survive and and whether that's on earth or, or mars or um via electric cars or not so i think that'd be quite fun i think that would be a very interesting conversation um, and then good. am i the third person you're allowed to have well as i said there is a max load i would say i would lift. say though they're, they're two big guys I, so i, I would I'd say probably, probably yeah probably want someone slightly smaller in stature <laughs> yeah so you can put in another person for can sure. i get a um someone to fix the elevator Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be quite smart. I think that's a good idea. And between us, we may then decide whether we want to stay in there or not. I think that's a great idea. Um, I would go for right now Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump oh, in nice. the same elevator. Yeah, yeah. yeah, given she ripped up the yeah. the, the, the speech. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd that'd be a, that's a current one. Obviously yeah, yeah, very current. Forever. Max, thank that's you very cool. much for joining me. No worries. Thanks a lot. There you have it. Thanks for joining me and a big shout out to Max for being on the episode. If you want to learn more about Spin Brands, go to spinbrands.co.uk or find them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. A couple of things before we wrap it up. Firstly, a big shout out to my sponsor, Clavio, the world's most recommended growth marketing platform on the market. If you want to learn more, go visit them at clavio.com slash your basket is empty. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. And yeah, finally... Uh, if you like the podcast, show it a bit of love. Uh, go like it, subscribe it, review it, 
tell your friends, tell your family, um, tell them it's the most interesting e-commerce podcast in the world. They're going to love it. I'll see you next time. Take a note.